something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A warning. This episode contains language and depictions of violence that may be disturbing to some listeners. You know, something I've been thinking about and something maybe I should have brought up a long time ago, but how do you feel about me being a white woman telling your story? Um, it's something, you know, the race thing. I was on the verge of becoming a racist when I was sent to Lucasville. The guards, they call you a nigger to your face. That's why I stopped using that word, in fact, because when you ever hear a racist call you that, you know exactly, it moves, it vibrates through your whole body. And then I was put on trial, and that was further that, you know, I need to hate white people. But, you know, all the guys who testified on me, guys who lied on me, you know, to save themselves were predominantly black. And, you know, so that caused me some kind of, you know, cognitive dissonance. I was confused about that whole thing. And then, you know, I started reading and reading and reading. I'm somebody who has spent, you know, decades actually educating myself about race, educating myself about politics, and, you know, those two things are married mostly to benefit those in power. You know, that's how they divide us, keep us divided. You know, Amy is the point person in my campaign, white lady. I'm always struck, even now, even after all the beautiful, loyal, dedicated white people who have come on, come into my life, have helped me in ways that without which I would, would really be stuck. You know, so experience has really been the thing that has informed my attitude in terms of people. I'm glad you came onto my case. That's a long way to answer your question, but you know, this is a really uh, loaded question though. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So, you know, I don't limit myself because limit myself only play into the hands of the people who are trying to put a noose around my neck. I'm Leah Rothman. This is The Real Killer. Episode 8, Visions of Versions. Nice. 
boarding school in so long. <laughs> well, it's kind of a ghost town here in our high school today. It's finals, and it's the last day of finals, and it's only for seven periods. That's Amy Gordayev. Keith just mentioned her. She's been the point person on the Justice for Keith Lamar campaign and one of his most fervent advocates for the last 10-plus years. She also runs a Facebook group called Justice for Keith Lamar. I meet with Amy at Cheney High School in Youngstown, Ohio, about nine miles from where Keith sits on death row. Oh, you're so sweet. Yeah, this is a great room. Yeah, I love it. Amy has always worked in education, teaching, then a quick detour to higher education marketing, then back to teaching. So now that I'm at Cheney, I'm at TESOL, a teacher of English to speakers of other languages. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty in the country in the school system here in Ohio. And so that means our kids have a lot of need, a lot of socioeconomic need. Everybody gets free and free lunch, and we spend a lot of time on just, you know, trying to work on equity. In 2011, Amy and her husband Paul, a professor of cultural anthropology at Youngstown State University, end up meeting Keith through civil and workers' rights advocates Stoughton and Alice Lind, who spent 20 years looking at Lucasville and the cases of the five men who are currently on death row. You heard from them briefly in Episode 7. My husband, Paul, was doing research at the time on race and religion and different aspects that have created the segregated situation that exists in Youngstown. And he came across the name of Stoughton Lind, who's a historian, and he contacted him to interview him. The Linds ended up inviting us to drive them to go blueberry picking for Alice's 80th birthday. So we took our minivan with the kids and the Lynns, and on that drive, they started talking about Lucasville, about these five guys. And I didn't even know who Stoughton Lind was. I didn't know his significant body of work in the civil rights movement, you know, none of it. I had no idea who they, they just were elderly folks that I thought were sweet, you know. One thing led to another, and the next thing you know, we were visiting Keith. As Amy researches and learns more about Keith's case, she realizes his version of events is far from public knowledge. When we would look online for information about him, all of it was the narrative that the state put forth. And it was like the articles coming from Southern Ohio, from the Cincinnati area. Everything was really the worst things that you could imagine about him. He was just a monster. So... Amy encourages Keith to write a book and tells him she'll help. He would write at night, and then in the morning he would call and he would dictate it. Eight months and 237 pages later, Condemned is published in 2014. It was a long process, but in the end, Condemned allowed Keith to tell his story from his point of view based on how it happened. Did you ever ask him point blank, are you innocent? I don't know if I ever asked that in that way. He says it all the time, I'm innocent. And I have seen with my own eyes, like, I've read the documents. It just reeks of wrongdoing, you know? There's no evidence. To me, if Keith were guilty of killing five people and the state offered him no additional charges, he would have been 
the dumbest person ever to not accept that offer, right? He wasn't going to do it because he didn't do those crimes. Amy believes investigators found an easy target in Keith because he was already in prison for killing someone. He just happened to be in the two places where people were murdered at Lucasville, L Block and K Block, and that his attitude definitely didn't help matters. He didn't want to cooperate, and he told other people, like, don't help them. This is, you know, he basically said, like, fuck them. You know, look what they did to us. I mean, he was young, and it was, I can't imagine the amount of trauma. I mean, I work with traumatized teenagers, and they react more harshly than that all the time. You don't trust anybody. And I think he just didn't trust that any, he would be safer for, for, for saying anything. That wasn't how you do your time. You keep your head down and you mind your own business. But many don't follow that same philosophy, like the men who testified against Keith. Amy says their testimony doesn't hold any water. The prison informants were paid. When I say paid um, prison informants, I'm talking about incentivized, rewarded somehow, dropped charges uh, or no added charges or earlier paroles, or you get to be moved to a different prison away from... Yeah, what do you know about Oakwood? What I know about Oakwood is that um, the men who agreed to become informants in the various trials were taken to Oakwood Correctional Facility. It was said afterwards that they were given access to commissary, food, cigarettes, kind of an open-door policy, lots more movement. And even at Thanksgiving, we're given a fabulous Thanksgiving dinner that the state folks who were present kind of referred to them as a family. Supposedly, some prisoners nicknamed Oakwood Snitch Academy. It seems like at Oakwood, that's where that script was uh, created. They worked out how they would say it, and then they would go around to trials after that and, and, and sing the song that they were taught to sing. Or maybe the state's witnesses were transferred to Oakwood for their own safety. I mean, they couldn't really be expected to coexist with the people they'd be testifying against, right? Regardless, Amy has other issues with how the state handled the investigation and Keith's case. You know, I guess I also push back even on the name Death Squad because that's a state word. That's a state name that they gave to kind of like spookify what they were, you know. I mean, the Death Squad, that's a premeditated kind of group or something, you know. It's just a, no, we weren't there. Nobody really knows what happened. But here's the other thing. Did they actually trample and ruin all the evidence or did they request to not have any of it be admissible because then they would... It's hard to believe that 22,000 pieces of evidence are actually inadmissible. People have asked over the years, what if he isn't innocent or what if he's guilty and all of that? And so I know that question is out there. But for me, even... I mean, even if he were guilty, which I absolutely don't believe he is, but even if he were... It still doesn't change the fact that the system is lynching black and brown men, that in the case of Lucasville, the way and the methods that were used were unconstitutional and wrong, that they cheated. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, 
In the United States, 55% of the death row population is made up of black and brown people, and 42% is white. 3% are referred to as other. More specifically, in Ohio, there are 77 black and brown people on death row versus 56 who are white. Amy has spent the last 10 years on Keith's case. I've only been on it for 10 months. I often think back to when I first started, how more than a few people told me that the story was too big and I was getting in way over my head. At the time, I think my pride got the better of me. My attitude was, ah, I got this. I'll show them. But they were right. There are just so many names, so many people directly related to Keith's case, and even more on the periphery. And still, this many months in, I don't have a real sense of what evidence actually exists. When Keith received certain pieces of potentially favorable evidence, how exactly he got them, or what exactly the courts have heard. But, all of that aside, Keith consistently goes back to a few examples he says can clearly point to his innocence and why he didn't get a fair trial. Like Aaron Jefferson. We talked about him in the last episode. Keith says Aaron Jefferson straight up confessed to murdering Daryl DePina, one of the so-called snitches killed in L6, and one of the murders Keith was sent to death row for. Keith claims his 1995 trial defense attorneys were never given Aaron Jefferson's full confession. If they had, it could have made a difference in the outcome of the trial. But the state strongly disagrees and says it wouldn't have changed a thing because Aaron Jefferson's confession is not credible. I wonder why. Hello, my name is Aaron Jefferson. I am a good-looking 51-year-old man. I'm from Cleveland. I'm going right to the source to find out. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hello? Hi, how are you? Aaron Jefferson calls me from Grafton Correctional Institution about 30 miles southwest of Cleveland. He says he first arrived at Lucasville a couple of years before the uprising. Back then, were you a member, were you part of any group? Uh, yeah, I was. I was a, a part, uh, member of the Gangs of Disciples. And it was supposed to be the three groups that were supposed to have control of the whole riot. And it was, it was a hell of an experience, I'll tell you that. When it all kicked off, where were you? I was on the yard at the time. I was uh, matter of fact, I was on my way in because I had to uh, come in and go to work. But a friend of mine was like, man, you can't go in there right now. And I'm like, okay. But I decided to go in there and check on my property. And that was probably worse According to that index of interviews the Ohio State Highway Patrol conducted, Aaron is interviewed once, a month after the uprising. A year later, he asks to speak with them, and he has a lot to say. So it seems like you requested to talk with investigators, and in that interview, you said that you killed David Summers and you killed Daryl DePina. I didn't do nothing to Daryl DePina. I don't even know. Who, I couldn't even tell you what Daryl DePina looked like, so don't know him. You said, I have to get this off my chest because other people are being charged with things and um, they didn't do it. D- did anyone ask you to admit to killing Daryl DePina? No. I don't remember that part. I mean, to say that, probably what I said. I don't know. You gave a pretty detailed description of what happened to him. And then the investigator tells me what? That I was lying about that too, huh? Two things to unpack here. First, I have the transcript of Aaron's full confession. In it, he describes in great detail how he killed Daryl DePina, 
where DePino worked in the prison and what he looked like, including his wild-looking beard. So that seems to contradict what he just said to me, that he didn't know him or even know what he looked like. The second thing is that Aaron also just said the investigator told him he was lying when he confessed to killing Daryl DePina. But that's not what happened. When Aaron confesses to killing Daryl DePina, the investigator says nothing to challenge it. When Aaron Jefferson confesses to killing David Summers, that's when the investigator tells him he's lying because what he says he did to David Summers doesn't match how David Summers was actually killed. So, were Aaron's confessions the truth or were they made up? They didn't charge Aaron with Daryl DePina's murder. Remember, the state says his confession wasn't credible. But Aaron was convicted of aggravated murder and sentenced 20 to life for killing David Summers. Did you see the death squad go through? No, but I, I heard about it. Do you know Keith Lamar? I know him. Did you see him inside L6 at no, all? I didn't, no, no, I didn't see him. I didn't see him, but, you know, I was outside for the long time before I went in, so I would swear on the stack of Bibles that he wasn't there. I couldn't do that because I don't know. I didn't see him while I was in there. So I'm, you know, I'm, yeah, so- I'm looking at his case. And, and and just trying to get a sense of, like, the investigation and what led to people being charged and then convicted of some of these crimes. Well, I think you would probably have to start with, you know, trying to get as much information as you can from the bottom up to see, really, was it, was it an investigation or was it just easier for them to get guys to tell on other guys and be done with it? Did investigators ask you to flip on, on people? Yeah. Matter of fact, at one point, uh prosecutor actually came to see me. And he wanted me to testify against Hassan. So, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Not going to help you put somebody on death row. Remember, Hassan, also known as Carlos Sanders, was the Sunni Muslim prayer leader at Lucasville, whose objections to the forced TB testing basically jump-started the uprising. What did they want you to say Hassan did? Basically what it is, they wanted to get a story. And if the story sounds believable to them, they wanted you to agree to that story. Because I remember talking to the prosecutor. I said, man, let me ask you a question. What if I couldn't tell you nothing? You come and ask me to testify against somebody, and I get on the court, and I get on the stand, I say, hey, I don't know what y'all talking about. I, I didn't see him do nothing. And he basically was telling me, no, you would tell them this. This is what happened. This is what you will repeat. And I said, well, that would like be like perjury. That would be lying, wouldn't it? He said, who knows you lying? So he basically told me, like, hey, you don't want to help yourself, then we don't want to help you. This is a prepaid debit call from Keith, an inmate at the Ohio State Penitentiary. I want to tell Keith about my conversation with Aaron. I got in touch with Aaron Jefferson. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, what do you have to say? So he was interesting. We talked about his confession. And I asked him, did you kill Daryl DePina? And he was, you know, Uh I mean, I wasn't surprised, but he said no. Why would he say no, though? 
now at this point, he's probably getting ready to go home. So he said he didn't kill Daryl DePena. No. I don't know what his status is right now, but why do you think that they got him on David Summers, but not on Daryl DePena? He confessed. But he confessed to Daryl DePena, right? Uh, yeah, I know. But I'm saying, you know, you asked me to explain something that really can't be explained. You know, I'm just using the twisted logic. You know, there was no rhyme or reason. If you're looking to, like, you know, pursue this logically, then you, you, you're going to be frustrated more often than not, you know, because a lot of it don't make sense. They didn't charge him with, you know, the Dapena thing because they already had me. In an attempt to try and make sense of it all, I tracked down Daryl Dapena's autopsy report to see if it matches what Aaron Jefferson said he did to him. The report says that Daryl DePina died of, quote, massive acute trauma to the head leading to skull fractures, subarachnoid hemorrhage, and cerebral contusion. There were also some abrasions on his body and lacerations to his right elbow and lower right leg. This is not what Aaron Jefferson said in his confession. He said he hit DePina on his left shoulder with an aluminum bat then he stabbed him 15 times in the torso. So it seems like Aaron Jefferson's confession doesn't match with the autopsy report. What do you say about that? You've seen the actual autopsy, I, I guess. I don't yes. think I have read it. Yeah, I, I saw the autopsy report. Now, it's not for me to read the autopsy and say Aaron Jefferson didn't do this or Devin Jefferson did do this. That's the space, space job to do that. My job is to clear my name, you know, but the fact of the matter is that Aaron Jefferson confessed to killing somebody for whom I was sentenced to death. And not only that, his confession was corroborated by uh, another prisoner, all of, of which was withheld from me, from, from, from my um, request for discovery. Somebody, um, not me, confessed to a murder that I was on trial for. That's exculpatory evidence. When I started this process, Amy, Keith's advocate, sent me some affidavits she wanted me to have. I'm going to share a few of them with you. Now, get ready, because you're about to hear some names you haven't heard before, but what these guys said may be significant. First, there's a 2005 affidavit from Sean Davis, and it has to do with Dennis Weaver's murder in that K-block cell. In it, Sean Davis said that he encouraged his friend William Bowling, remember he's the hands-on killer of Dennis Weaver, to blame Keith for ordering Weaver's death since Keith was already being blamed for the snitch killings in L6. Sean Davis said he was wrong for doing that when it wasn't true. I reached out to Sean Davis, but he never responded. Then there's Eric Gertie. He's currently at Mansfield Correctional Institution. In a 2001 affidavit, Eric Gertie wrote that he was coerced by State Trooper Sergeant Howard Hudson and Special Prosecutor Mark Peepmeyer to make some statements about some people like Hassan and Keith. Then, in a 2003 affidavit, he said more. And I'm quoting... I was in the block, L6, when the murders took place and Keith Lamar was not present. I, not Keith Lamar, am responsible for the death of William Savetti. 
I was approached by the highway patrol to say that Keith Lamar was the leader of the so-called death squad in exchange for a reduced sentence and exemption for a capital offense. Keith Lamar has not threatened me or promised me anything. In fact, I have not spoken to Keith or discussed this matter with him in any way. I am doing this because a man's life is on the line for something I did and for the lies I was persuaded to tell for the state. By the way, from what I understand, the courts have been made aware of Eric Gertie's affidavits and have concluded they don't change a thing. I ask Keith about Eric Gertie. The interesting thing about Eric Gertie, he came forward, he had some kind of crisis of his conscience, you know, admitted to, you know, um, participating in various things. I mean, you said that in 2003, I've already been on death row almost a decade. I'm thankful that this information has come forward. I wish you would have cultivated that courage when it mattered. I reached out to Eric, and he responded. We emailed for a few months about the possibility of me interviewing him. Ultimately, he decided against participating. But here is some of what he shared with me in his emails. Quote, I've been very salty about the way the state used and abused me for years. The state got guys on death row who had nothing at all in killing the officer. They tricked a lot of guys into do-or-die situations. They straight out wrongfully convicted a lot of dudes on some bullshit for real. Hopefully, word will spread across the country to people in power who will see through all the evil and vicious stuff the state of Ohio did to hurry up and convict and close the door on 93 Uprising. Look, Sean Davis and Eric Gertie's affidavits are quite compelling. It's hard to believe that a court would read them and say it changes nothing. And it's really too bad Eric Gertie said no to an interview. But there's someone I never imagined who actually said yes. This is a free call from... Andre. An inmate at the Marion Correctional Institution. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family. 
but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. This call is from a collection facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Hi, Andre. Hello. Andre Stockton has an unfortunately unique perspective on the uprising. He was actually one of the alleged snitches in L6 who was attacked by the so-called death squad. I am in no way prepared for what he's about to say. Thank you for calling back. It was so loud outside, so I just wanted to make sure that we could hear each other okay. Okay. Andre Stockton, who is now 70, arrived at Lucasville in September of 1979. Andre says, like most people who were there back then, it was a dangerous and explosive environment. The day of the uprising, the air was extra thick with it. Andre describes how it all began. Well, it was in the early afternoon. The doors opened, and, you know, people were hollering. A little, you know, it was a little louder than what it normally is. So, you know, I looked out, looked out of my door that was open, and uh, I stepped out and stepped into it. You know, stepped into uh, rebellion. And if you don't mind sharing, what what happened to you? Well, uh, first of all, I, I attempted to leave the block to 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 leave and go out to the yard, but they had inmates that prevented that. So I uh, I, I went to find who the leader is who's leading this, you know, and uh, I knew the guy. That would have been uh, Carlos Sanders. Okay, and uh, I encountered him and uh, told him that I, that, I, that I really was trying to leave. And he asked me for a favor. And in return for the favor, I was going to be able to leave and go out. I was supposed to deliver a message to someone, all right? I'm heading back, and a group of inmates uh, stopped me, as I recall it. They escorted me to six, to six block, sale 62. And they locked me in that block. 
I had heard that Carlos Sanders, Hassan, wanted to put people that were considered quote-unquote snitches in cells for, exactly. for safekeeping. That's, that's, that's exactly the case. That's exactly, that's true. I, I believe to this day that that was his intention. So, he, did, he, did, he did order. Right. Had you talked with administration? Had you helped them? Did they, or did the other people there that day believe you to be a quote-unquote snitch? Here, this, here, here, here it goes right here, okay? Uh, there was one guy that, it was a Muslim guy, uh, and him and I that had problems, all right? We had a beef, okay? And he threw an accusation out there. That was my burden to prove. Yeah. Didn't ask to your question, no. I wasn't a snitch for the administration or anything like that. Okay. What happens next? Then a, a group of guys came by with disguises on. They entered my cell, and I don't remember one moment of one thing ever since. I've had nightmares about it. I've had day visions about it. But all of that, none of that is is reality. You follow what I'm saying? The point that you should know that maybe you don't know is that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you remember at all um, being hit by more than one person? Yes, I remember it was at least six people. I even know faces. Don't know. No, no. <laughs> Listen, they were disguised, but I could see through some of the disguises, you know what I mean? I was, I was beat till they thought I was dead. And I was taken outside in a cart and discarded as trash as dead. They recovered me, probably, best estimations, about 3 o'clock that night and discovered that I was alive. And I don't know any of this stuff. All this is just reports and what have you. I don't have no no recollection of none of this. And next thing I know is that um, it was almost two weeks later that I woke. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry. I mean, it, I'm just so sorry that happened to you. Well, I appreciate that, but you know, I mean, listen, uh, uh, God is good. I'm alive today. I wanted to say something. Uh, do you know that after all of these years, that 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 stigma still is attached to me, as far as you know, like being like an informant or snitch. That that label has followed you. Yes. Yeah. It's a it's a trip. It really is because you know you know. <laughs> How can you defend the undefendable? Who was charged with the attack on you? Well, uh, I think that one person that I know of was convicted. How about something being ironic? I don't know that guy's name or face for the life of me right to this day. I think Keith might have been uh, 
uh, he was definitely accused and associated with it. I think that he got out of it because of the severity of the other charges outweighed the necessity of using minor charges. They asked him about it, I know that. So did you ever see Keith as part of that group who attacked you? How do you mean? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. He was there? Yes. Because you said you didn't really know who was there, but you know that you saw Keith? I, I recognized a few of the guys that were there in the group. He was one of them. He was labeled as the leader of the death squad. Do you remember anything about him giving orders or? No. Do you remember him hitting you? So, had you known Keith before? Listen, okay, insofar as Keith, I knew him when I see him. I did not personally know him. Uh, I believe in my heart to this day that he had purchased a pair of shoes that were stolen from me a few weeks prior to the Lucasville riot. That's what I was going through prior to the riot. Like I had my mind on some other things, some retribution. And, and. Prior to the riot. Right. So you're focused on like, who stole my shoes? Oh, yes. And, and a little more. You know, somebody had paid somebody to jump me. I had my own little world that I was, you know, that I was involved in. And, uh, you know, I was seriously, uh, uh, ready to take somebody's life over over the matter. That's that's where my mind was at the time. And you're saying that Keith Keith was involved in the sh- the shoes situation? Only only not only 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 to the extent that he might have uh, purchased shoes. I see. He didn't have anything to do with the jumping, the paying someone to jump you to take the no. shoes. No, no. What size shoe did you wear, or do you wear? Uh-huh. And I don't know what size Keith wears. I only know what I've been told, that he wears a 13. And let me say this, let me say this, okay? Here, there is a situation that might that might well be true, but here's the circumstance here. The shoe was a particular shoe. It was a Hirachi, a Nike Hirachi, blue and white high top shoe. Very, 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 very popular and distinctive in prison. And they were the only pair that I had seen. You follow me? So, Andre believes Keith bought his stolen shoes. I wonder. Andre says he was ready to take somebody's life over these stolen shoes. Might he be pointing the finger at Keith now as retribution for allegedly purchasing these stolen shoes? Do you remember talking to investigators? Yes, some. This was this would have been some time later after I was brought back to Lucasville. I guess just describe for me a little bit of of that. Like, did you have multiple meetings with them? Yeah, let me say this in all fairness: those 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 interviews were very cloudy because, like, I wasn't myself. I'm sure that you know. They took with, 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 with a grain of salt anything that I would have said. i tell you what they did, too, though. That 
what they did do, they kind of took advantage of me, okay? They tried to tell me a story, and a part of it I knew was true, and a part of it I knew wasn't true. They tried to give me a story. Do you remember what that was? You know, I haven't focused on this in years, but I could think back at the time, it was so urgently important for me to know what had happened. I could not, cannot, to this day, out of it bothers me that such an important thing that happened to me, what happened, and not knowing what actually happened in that cell. I do recall, though, uh, when they took me back to to uh, Lucasville and put me upstairs in the infirmary, which is where they kept some potential witnesses, uh, I remember their interviews. The tapes, they were interviewed, uh, and, and they had different numbers, right? Yes. And there was an interview number that I had associated with the lie they told me that I remember. And I asked them to give me a copy of that interview, you know, which I sure did. They never gave it to me. If you have the interviews, if you have the interviews, the information is there. I don't have the interviews. I have a list of the interviews. Okay. I submitted a FOIA request to the Ohio Attorney General's Office for Andre's interviews, as well as the interviews of several others, but they never sent them. So I pull out the index of interviews. It seems like one, two, three, four, five, six of your interviews were not recorded. Only one of them was recorded. And it was... Wow. Yeah. That's <laughs> kind of sneaky. I have doubts about them having all those interviews, and most of them were not recorded. I don't think that might be the case. So when you were interviewed after, I mean, you had been in a coma for a couple of weeks. Right. Yes. Yes. So then when you woke up, did you, like, did you remember Keith right out off the bat or did that come in time? When, when, when I woke up, and I had a group of doctors there, but they told me that the most imperative thing that I must do is to try not to remember about the events that had happened, okay? And that was a hard thing to do. But I would do exercises of completely emptying my mind of thought. Unfortunately, visions of versions would come to my mind, just like they were pictures. But the more I tried not to think about it, the more, you know, versions of it would come to my mind. Do you remember who first brought up Keith? Do you remember if the investigators asked you if he was there? Well, well now, see, see, hold on a second. You just, I, I, I just, I, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I, you know, what you did, you just did something. You just, you, you just sparked a memory of how they lied. They tried to tell me that it was black men that they did this to me, and I knew they were lying. That's what it was. 
hear me? Yeah, I do. And I knew that it was a lie. He wasn't. He was. He wasn't there. They tried to give me a version where they put him as the guy. Yes, they did. Do you remember who first brought up Keith's yeah. name? No, no, I don't. But I tell you this, though. Let me say this to you. So the way I remember him is because I named him Alphabet. I named him Alphabet so that I wouldn't forget his name. I had to put the name with the face. I knew the face, but I, I, had, I, had, to, I had to find out his name. And the reason why I called him Alphabet is because of the lettering of the alphabet, J-K-L, K-L, okay? Okay. okay. I said, I, he was there. He was, he was at that door, that cell. I never said that he did, put his hands on me. And, and I'll tell you something else in case you, you don't know. You know, I don't want to see nobody on no death row dying. Since my conversation with Andre, I learned that in 2019, an investigator for Keith's federal defenders met with him. At that time, Andre allegedly told this investigator he didn't know if Keith was the one who attacked him during the riot. This investigator noted that Andre had previously pointed the finger at Keith, based on the fact that he said he saw Keith wearing his stolen shoes— and the person wearing the stolen shoes was the same person who attacked him along with the death squad. But in 2019, when the investigator told Andre that Keith wears a size 13, not his size, a size 10 and a half, Andre changed his story. Fast forward to 2022, the investigator met with Andre again. This time, Andre went back to implicating Keith. So to recap, Andre said Keith was one of his attackers, then he said he didn't know if he was, then he said he wasn't, then he said he was. So, what is the truth? Does Andre remember Keith now as clearly as he says he does, or are his memories based on what he's read in the reports? And, or maybe, possibly, heard from investigators? Or again, is this some kind of payback for Keith allegedly buying his beloved stolen shoes? But if Andre is right, that he saw Keith there as part of that so-called death squad, why wasn't Keith charged with his attempted murder? I mean, an attempted murder charge is not a minor charge. So why would the authorities give Keith a pass on a charge like that when they believe he took part in multiple murders just moments later? Wouldn't adding Andre's attack further bolster their case? I'm not sure what Keith is going to say about any of this. So I spoke with Andre Stockton. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. What do you he, say? He says he doesn't remember a lot and that a lot of what he knows is from what he read in the reports he told me that he had these shoes that um, they were stolen from him. And he believed that you had bought these stolen shoes. He said, I was ready to take someone's life over it. 
I asked him what he remembers from that day. And he remembers being locked up. He remembers some guys coming to his cell around six guys. And I asked him if he saw you. And he said, yes. He said he remembers you coming to the cell. So what do you have to say about that? It doesn't make sense based on what you just told me. It's, you know, um, he had memory loss, you know. Um, that's what I was told. He was in a coma. This whole story about shoes is, you know, really kind of, you know, left field type thing. But it seems like what he was saying is that he thought I stole his shoes or had something to do with his shoes coming up missing and he was out for retribution. That's what I heard you say. But that makes sense. You just came out of a coma. You have memory loss and all of this. And the only way, based on his explanation to you, the only way he could be specific, he had to have been given some information about the details of, of, of the situation. You know, the state has probably since had a conversation with him saying that you can't say Keith Lamar wasn't there. I said, did he hurt you or hit you? And he said, no. And I said, did he direct anyone to do anything? And he said, no. And so, you know, I... I I heard. If he's saying, Leah, he saw me inside, of, oh, excuse me, Leah, if he's saying he saw me inside of L6, I'm admitting to being in L6. I was assigned to L6. I came to L6. I didn't have a mask on. If he's saying he saw me before he was beaten or assaulted, uh, 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 that's possible. But I don't see how he can even remember that. You know, hey, this guy, you know, with this lost memory or whatever, the thing he do remember is these tennis shoes. Look, I wasn't there, so I don't know what happened. But Andre's story has seemed to change over the years. What exactly motivated those changes? I don't know. I'm at a bit of a loss. So I decided to reach out to someone for some much-needed advice to hopefully help me make sense of the conflicting information I've been gathering. I call Steve Weinberg, who was a part of our last season. Remember, Steve and his University of Missouri journalism students spent a semester investigating and writing about Rodney Lincoln's case. Steve warns me about how much work is involved in winning trust and getting candid answers from those who are incarcerated. It's not that it's impossible, it's just incredibly challenging. I tell Steve that I'm not feeling very much like a journalist these days, I'm trying to stay objective, but to be painfully honest, I really like Keith, and I care about what happens to him. Steve understands my unenviable position, then reminds me of someone I should call who will definitely be able to help. Oh, Leah, how are you? I'm well, Sean. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How's your podcast coming? That's Sean O'Brien. He was one of Rodney Lincoln's attorneys, who was also a part of our last season. You know how I felt about Rodney and his case, and it was a five-plus-year journey for me. This case is, I, I, Sean, I can't think of much else these days. Sean is the perfect person to talk with. His remarkable career says it all. He is currently a professor at UMKC Law School, But really, he is an innocence lawyer, specializing in representing people sentenced to death. Three of his first four exonerations were prison homicides. 
and he is most known for the landmark Supreme Court case on innocence, Schlup versus Delo, which was also a prison homicide case. You know, people used to think that being in prison and being convicted of murder was the best reason or argument that we should have the death penalty. But in my experience, these are the least reliable convictions just because of the environment in which they happen. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you. You think things are supposed to go a certain way. That's the way they go on the quote unquote outside. What I'm learning is that it's a very, very different environment there, right? It is such a different culture. I've had to consult experts in prison culture and in prison security just so that I can understand how things work in a prison. Relationships are different. The degree of control that one person has over another is completely different. Loyalties within the prison are different. Law enforcement, you know, we think of guards as law enforcement, and they're really not. Uh, I think it's historical accident who ends up on which side of the bars inside of a prison. There are good people on both sides of the bars, don't get me wrong, but it really takes a special approach. Because I came to the point after investigating the Schlup case, the Joe Amrine case, the Eric Clemens case, the Reggie Griffin case, those are all people exonerated from prison murders because guards lied and inmates lied. Sean says prison culture at its core distorts the truth-finding process because prison is all about survival. The way this fellow explained it to me, he says, you come into a prison and you've got a choice. If you've got 20 years to do, you could do it on your feet or you could do it on your stomach. The first thing you have to learn is uh, there is no shame in getting an ass whooping, but there is shame in backing down. Before our call, I sent Sean some court documents so he could familiarize himself a little with Keith's case. I jump right in with questions about how it seems the investigation was handled. In the trial transcripts, the defense read from some of the interviews of, you know, with the Ohio State Highway Patrol who ran the investigation. And these investigators were like, help me help you. I need your help. Let's help each other. Right. I mean, if you know you have something valuable, it doesn't have to be true. It just has to be valuable. (laughs) Then uh, that is a significant coin in the prison economy. What you've described about the uh, investigators' techniques, you know, help me help you. I need your help with this. It's a page out of the read interrogation method. Um, which is not a, a method conducive to producing truthful statements. The Reed interrogation technique was developed in the 1940s. Some say it can be useful in getting information from uncooperative suspects. Others say it results in a high rate of false confessions because of its use of deceit. So the investigation, uh, quite often uh, in a case like this, is confirming a pre-existing theory about what happened. They're not truly investigating. They're looking for custom-made puzzle pieces to fit their story. And that's commonly what happens in a prison setting. And so I would want to know who was present 
during these interviews. Uh, I would want to know where were these inmates being housed and with whom. What was the proximity to the people we think uh, might be the real killers? Even though everyone who is testifying for the prosecution, there are inconsistencies in their testimony, they tell a similar story, right? Part of me can understand why the jury, even though it was an all-white jury, and that was absolutely unfair. I could see why a jury, just at face value, if you hear so many people telling a similar story and all pointing the finger at Keith, why they ended up with the verdict that they did. You know, the consistency uh, isn't something that would bother me that much. The question is... <laughs> The exact consistency and the closer it gets, that actually adds an element of suspiciousness. If it just seems to fit together a little too well, um, then you've got problems. When you're locked up in prison, you are extremely vulnerable to the pressure to give the prosecution the story that it wants. So I'm suspicious of inmate testimony for a lot of reasons. I mean, prosecutors are also suspicious of inmate testimony, except when inmates are testifying for them. I wanted to talk to you. So Special Prosecutor Mark Piesmeyer, when asked about Brady, how he applied Brady to the case, he said that he applied a narrow Brady standard. And first of all, have you ever heard that before? You know, a lot of prosecutors don't understand what Brady versus Maryland means. It means that the prosecutor has to turn over any evidence favorable to the defendant, whether it be on the issue of guilt or innocence or punishment. Where they play games with typically is on whether or not it's material. And the definition of material is if the jury hears it, is there a reasonable likelihood of a different result? And so I hear a lot of prosecutors say, well, it's not Brady evidence because it's not exonerating. That's not the Brady standard. Well, and it's interesting because in Keith's case, Stacey Gordon, as part of his plea agreement, they interviewed Stacey Gordon again. And in it, they asked, do you know Keith Lamar? And he said, no. And they said, did you see Keith Lamar in L6? And he said, no. So that was never turned over. Although on the stand, he was one of the star witnesses who said that he watched Keith as a death squad leader go cell to cell calling for the killings of these snitches. When you have a witness who says, I saw the defendant, you know, commit the crime. And then on another occasion says, I didn't see him at the scene of the crime at all. That's Brady material. That's exactly it. That's the kind of thing you'd want the jury to know before deciding whether or not to believe that witness. By the way, of the 50 trials, and I think there are 47 convictions, five are on death row. There was no physical evidence tying anyone to any of the crimes. Well, and that, I can't imagine there's not blood spatters or fingerprints or some other physical evidence even, and on uh, certainly uh, Lamar's clothing. His clothing would be splattered with blood if he were present in any of these. Well, what allegedly happened was 300 men were out there. They're all brought into the gymnasium and they're all stripped naked. All their clothes are thrown into a big heap. And what I was told was they were all eventually burned. So 
That seems to me to be what I would call the spoliation of evidence. That means that you've destroyed evidence in the case. That's a crime, right? And so I would, one of the things I would do in my investigation and the discovery is that I would focus like a laser beam on who made that decision. What did they know at the time they made it? And what was their involvement in the subsequent prosecution? That to me is a really important part of the story. I mean, how can you say somebody's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt when you destroyed the evidence that could have exonerated That's That's atrocious. And, you know, likely, uh, I think there's an argument here that they had a scenario that they wanted to prove and they didn't want physical evidence to get in the way of that story. I've reached out to prosecutors Mark Peepmeyer, Seth Teeger, and Bill Anderson with a list of questions, including this one. Were Keith's and the other prisoners' clothes burned or destroyed? I'm still waiting to hear back. The prosecutor's theory of the case that produces the original conviction and death sentence is kind of the official story that the court signs off on. And so one of the things I do when I'm training post-conviction lawyers is that you've got to come up with a different, better, more truthful story. And that's a big challenge. Is there any physical evidence linking Lamar to the crime? In most exonerations, there is no physical evidence linking the defendant to the crime. Were there other ways in which the trial was unfair? Is it tainted by race discrimination? If that's the case, that's a red flag. Did the prosecution depend heavily on the use of inmate testimony? That's a huge red flag, and that red flag gets bigger if any of that testimony was incentivized. And then I look at whether or not there was evidence implicating another person that was omitted from Keith's trial. That would be a huge red flag. I can see from just the little you've shown me and putting that together with what I already know about prison culture, prison investigation. I think that a narrative could be assembled for Keith that would demonstrate the unreliability of this conviction. The challenge is, what is the new story? You put these pieces together and you assemble that new story. Yeah. Oh my God, Sean, thank you so much. Absolutely, um, glad to help. I don't know what happened. I, you know, yeah. I, I don't know, but knowing that he may be executed, it's just, I, it's just a very upsetting. Yeah, you know, a man is about to die who might be in Next time on The Real Killer. But what was intended to be a peaceful protest ended up turning into a full-scale rebellion. A revealing conversation with the man who many say started it all. The former imam at Lucasville. So when you got to L6 and you saw the people that you wanted put away for safekeeping had been murdered, what did you think? I want to know how did they get in here? Who let them in? A lot of people came out and said Keith was the leader of the death squad. Did you see him inside L6 or the L block in those early minutes and hours of the uprising?
The Real Killer is a production of AYR Media and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Leah Rothman. Executive producers Leah Rothman and Elisa Rosen for AYR Media. Written by Leah Rothman. Executive producer, Paulina Williams. Senior associate producer, Jill Pashesnik. Coordinator, George Fom. Editing and sound design by Cameron Taggy. Mixed and mastered by Cameron Taggy. Audio engineering by Matt Jacobson. Studio engineering by Anna Mulishan. Legal counsel for AYR Media, Gianni Douglas. Executive producer for iHeartRadio, Maya Howard. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.